Hi, and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropists who are committed to planetary purpose, or in other words, holistic visions for planet Earth. My name is Julian Guderlei, and in today's episode, I'm hosting an interview with Patricia Sims. Patricia is the founder of World Elephant Day and also the president of World Elephant Society. That journey started on August 12, 2012, where the inaugural World Elephant Day was launched to bring attention to the urgent flight of Asian and African elephants. The elephant is loved, revered, and respected by people and cultures around the world, and yet we balance on the brink of seeing the last of those magnificent creatures, especially through ivory trade around the world. So today we'll talk about conservation, about preservation, and finding alignment with our actions as human beings on the planet and how animal relationships can teach us that or kind of model that. I'm very excited to have you on the show, Patricia. Welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet. Thank you, Julian. It's nice to be here. Yeah, so you're a filmmaker at heart, Patricia, and your journey kind of brought you to the elephant over, over short or long. Um, but I know that there's lots of other stories uh, from, from other animal human behaviors and, and interactions. Like, wh where do we want to start? I, you know, I, I think it's, it's, so, it's so vast, this topic of how humans and animals interact on this planet. And it's just really obvious to me that, that a lot of it needs some kind of upgrade, you know, where we understand um, we're not alone on this planet and that, that makes this planet so worth living on. So maybe share with us what was that initial spark of curiosity or excitement that brought you to do what you're doing? Well, in fact, it started when I was quite young. Um, I was always uh, finding a lot of um, tranquility wandering around the... Uh, the forests and creeks where I grew up. And I always loved animals. And I always felt that uh, animals were other, other beings, you know, other nations here that we shared with on earth, you know, that they weren't, uh, uh, you know, something for us to, to dominate or control. So even at a very young age, I had that, you know, that sense that animals were really important here. And that's just not having pets, but also wildlife. So, so that grew into essentially what my filmmaking career became. Um, you know, I started off uh, working as a director in Toronto and television producer, doing mostly factual series and dramatic films. And, and then um, I, I fell in love with, with dolphins, in fact. It was first dolphins that kind of pulled me into making films about animals. And uh, that led me on, um, on an international journey. I made several films about dolphins and whales around the world and really focusing on a lot of the issues that were impacting the future survival of, of dolphins and whales. And of course, dolphins and whales are arguably the smartest creatures on earth or in the ocean for sure. And uh, it, you know, it's not too much of a leap to extend that to elephants, but the elephants came much later in, in my career. But for the most part, um, you know, the human animal, human nature connection has really been the strongest underpinning to all of the films that I have made. Um, and it not, it, it, in some cases, it also reflects humans to humans. So some of the stories I've followed have also looked at, you know, human issues and human relationships um, with protection of nature and conservation and spiritual connections with nature and so on. So, so for me, it's really showing, you know, the importance of our interconnectivity with the natural system that we live within, that we live on this beautiful planet, Gaia, 
our, our mother, you know, she herself is a living organism. Mm. The planet is an interconnected living being and all life forms that live here are all related in, in some way. So we're part of this big system and <clears throat> really the ultimate, the ultimate uh, organism is really the earth herself, you know? So those ideas were very early in my, in my career understanding, you know, what that relationship is and both you know looking at it from the scientific perspective but then also from the holistic and spiritual perspective too because if you go back you look at traditional knowledge cultures and creation mythologies and many of these ideas are, are very very old so this isn't anything you know new to come mm -hmm. forward with but as civilization has evolved we have become you know much more mechanistic and materialistic society which has taken totally. away from from these deeper relationships that are are everywhere and you know it extends between the, the trees and the rocks and the forests and the ocean and the animals and us too so we're all part of this system so these ideas were really a big part of my early work as a filmmaker and the first film that kind of broke me out of the you know the film industry world that i was in in toronto was a film that i made called for the love of dolphins and that was a film that really looked at our relationship with dolphins but also looking at it from the kind of the communication perspective you know what is it to communicate with these creatures you know and understanding their brain anatomy and understanding how they interact with their environments so that led me on the journey that uh brought me to where I am today, which is, you know, elephants, right? So, so in many ways, um, I guess elephants are kind of a, a logical extension to make from dolphins and whales <laughs> because they're the largest, the they're, they're, you know, they're the largest animals um, on earth. They have the largest brains on earth. And so I've always been very interested in that idea of, of, of sentience and intelligence within the animal kingdom. So elephants really drew me in at a very, you know, kind of early stage in my work here on the west coast of Canada. I eventually moved here to Victoria about 15 years ago after living in other parts of the world. And I started to learn about some studies that had been done with elephants um, on their communications abilities, but also their self-awareness. So. There's a, there's a series of tests that are done. Um, it's been done with dolphins. It's been done with primates called the Amira self-recognition testing. And, and it's essentially showing an animal their reflection in a mirror and through a number of sort of signs that are put on the animals, the animals react like, oh, that's me. So, so that, you know, indicates that, oh, they have a sense of self. So they have self-awareness. So you know, when you're looking at animals like gorilla or orangutans or dolphins or whales or elephants, you kind of feel like, of course they have self-awareness, you know, yeah. like, how could you not, how could you think otherwise? But as science likes to find, you know, quantifiable methods by which to understand these things, you know, the mirror self-recognition testing uh, was developed. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, with respect to the elephants in a little while. Yeah, but at any rate, that's what kind of got me interested to elephants initially. Um, and in terms of just understanding the work that was being done with elephants. And through that, I learned about what was happening um, to elephants globally with respect to the ivory poaching and uh, habitat loss. 
So as I started to learn more about those issues, um, I started to become, you know, really concerned about what was happening in the world and what we were doing to this incredible animal. And having had all those years, you know, dealing with the issues around dolphins and whales, it just was like, you know, wow, like I really felt this, this attraction, this, this calling, if you will, to, to get involved with elephants. So that started about 10 years ago. Mm. And uh, then I went down the road of, of making a couple of films about elephants. So I made two films um, and they were all linked as World Elephant Day evolved into World Elephant Day. So the films, there was a 30 minute film called Return to the Forest and a feature length documentary called When Elephants Were Young. And both of those films really focused on the interrelationship between humans and elephants uh, in Thailand. We did all of our filming in Thailand. Uh, both films were uh, narrated by William Shatner and they were about five years of, of making those two films. And mm. if you're familiar with the, the process of independent documentary filmmaking, yeah. it is a labor of love. <laughs> it takes quite a long time to put these projects together, especially when you're following, you know, long storylines and such. So, so what happened is uh, during the course of time that we were filming in Thailand, um, I started following the life of a young man and a young elephant who were uh, street begging in uh, in Bangkok, and it was quite upsetting to see this lifestyle of this uh, not just for the elephant but also for um, for the young man. You know that they were, yeah. you know, street beggars, and I wanted to understand what this what this uh, relationship was between the elephant and and these. Uh, street mahuts, as they were called. And mahuts is the name for uh, um, a caretaker, a person who looks after elephants. So that led us down this path of following the life of these of these people and the elephants. And so the stories were really as much about the people and the elephants because I, I was very interested in this relationship and the history of this relationship and and what had happened over over time. So along the way. Um, the young elephant, her name is Nong Mai, um, was rescued uh, by a mysterious uh, organization that I hadn't heard about at that time. And of course, you know, getting involved with all the issues, you learn about the different conservation organizations that are doing the various things that they're doing. So we learned that the organization, the Elephant Reintroduction Foundation, was an initiative from the Queen of Thailand. And the Queen of Thailand was uh, had not personally specifically, but it established under her name um, this organization that was returning elephants back to the wild in these very, very big uh, protected forest habitats. I have a dog in 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 my studio, and he's far away. That he's 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 adding in his own comments here. He's like, wait a second, she's not talking about me. <laughs> talking about the big the big brother the elephants. Yeah, so. Um, at any rate, now I might have to excuse myself for a minute here, Julian, year old, so he's still, still a puppy. So <laughs> at any rate, um, so the, the Queen of Thailand's foundation, you know, was very impressive and they, they actually uh, rescued Nong Mai and returning her back to oh, wow. this vast forest habitat, but half a million acres of protected forest habitat that had been had established by the King and Queen of Thailand. So um, when, we, when we found out about that, um, we wanted to follow the journey of her going back to the, to the wild. Mm -hmm. I'm 
talking about the Alfred Reintroduction Foundation and um, when we, you know, found out that they had uh, rescued Nong Mai to release her back to the wild. At that time, they had, I guess, about 80 elephants that they'd rescued around Thailand and were returning them back to um, wild forest habitat that had been protected there in the country. So, um, you know, that was really exciting to find out that this was going to be the future for this elephant that had been, you know, street begging in Bangkok. So we, at that time, asked uh, if we could uh, film her life back to the wild. And this is a royal foundation, and they hadn't had any uh, film teams or anything come into these areas yet. So we were actually the first film crew that had this access. And that's what you can see in, in, in Return to the Forest and When Elephants Be Young. Those two films kind of follow that storyline and then the life of of uh, a walk who's the the name of the the young man and and uh Nang Mai. so that that process was a couple of years making those films and um it was during that time that we started as i said to see like what was happening with elephants and you know the ivory crisis was really starting to uh to pick up um that was about 2008 and it had happened because there was a um, a so-called kind of legal trade of stockpiled ivory from uh, a few different African countries sold into China and Japan. Yeah. And at that point, and the, a lot of organizations were very against that at that time, but that's really, you know, what opened up the floodgates to what then became the whole illegal trade of ivory. So, so by the time like 2010 rolled around 2011, I mean, it was getting really bad. I mean, we were losing like, you know, thousands of elephants a year, right? It was like 35,000 elephants a year that were being, you know, documented as being slaughtered by the, yeah. you know, the, po the poaching rings. So by the time 2012 came around, um, you know, I started to, you know, feel like something had to be done because it wasn't just the poaching issues that we were learning about in the work around elephant conservation. It was also the habitat problems, you know, and the bigger issue really for elephants is a habitat loss issue. I mean, you know, the ivory poaching, there's been quite a lot of work that's been done since then and lots more enforcement and many, many countries have now banned their, their domestic ivory trade and so on. So we've done collectively so many different organizations worldwide came together on this issue. Yeah. But we're still ultimately left with this bigger problem, which is the habitat problem. Um, it's one thing to protect these amazing animals and all the other amazing animals, but ultimately where are they going to live? because at the same time we've got this growth of humanity and we've got this development and we've got this extraction of natural resources that continues to escalate. So we talk about all these different ways by which we need to be, you know, in harmony with nature. Well, what is that really yeah. connected to ultimately when you've got all these incredible animals um, and trees and ecosystems that are being imposed upon by our egotistical society. So, so that's essentially what prompted me to, to form World Elephant Day. So that was on August 12th, 2012. And people often ask me, you know, why August 12th? And that day was selected because that was the Queen of Thailand's birthday. So kind of in honor of that initiative that was established with the Alfred Reintroduction Foundation. Um, really cool. We, we they honored her their, for uh, that initial return into the wild. Exactly, exactly. And that work is still going on today by that organization. 
Um, it's been very successful, actually. That's one of the very successful conservation programs that I've been part of to see, the, you know, because elephants really can readapt to the, to the wild uh, quite easily. Um, they have the ability, they help each other. Um, and these, are, these elephants were all interesting because they, they're captive animals, but elephants are all wild. There's not a, elephants are not a domesticated species. So many of the elephants that we see in captivity, even in the zoos in North America, were originally born in the wild and then they're captured. And there's a whole trade around the capture of wild elephants for sale to zoos and so on. And that's actually been one of the recent issues that we were dealing with just in this uh, 2019 World Elephant Day, in fact, was um, Zimbabwe uh, capturing baby elephants to sell to China zoos and so on. And actually coming into the United States into zoos as well. So ultimately point being that elephants remember because they have big brains and long memories uh what it's like to live in in, in nature so they can be real rehabilitated back to the wild you know relatively easily you know providing they're healthy and so on so the reintroduction foundation uh their work was a really good example of that of that working as a very positive successful conservation program and that's why World Elephant Day was, you know, put in the, in the name and birth date of the Queen of Thailand's work. So, so that happened in, in 2012. And, and, you know, at that time, social media was very new still. I mean, it's, it was nothing then. What Interesting it is how now, fast it changed the world, in, right? In, in terms of culture, right? Yeah. And in terms of, of how it reaches people and how, inter, how people interact with it. And, so we launched World Elephant Day completely as a grassroots initiative. Um, it was done from Bangkok, myself and my team, and we did a big sort of social media um, strategy. We created a whole database. We, I did a whole kind of outreach to all the, the then elephant conservation organizations that were doing work on the ground to help protect elephants. Of course, now there's even more elephant conservations than there were then. And so we just kind of put the word out and uh, released Return to the Forest on the first World Elephant Day, um, which was the film I spoke about, which was about the Reintroduction Foundation's work. And uh, we got a lot of attention, initially from the other elephant conservation organizations, um, but then the public, because of course, everybody loves elephants. And then the more people learned about elephants, the more they realized how important these animals are and how we why we have to protect them. Yeah. And so, the whole World Elephant Day initiative grew both from the perspective of the elephant conservation organizations, but also the public. And at that time, we had no idea that it would grow to what it became, has become today. And I still run it as a, as a grassroots initiative. I mean, people often think uh, World Elephant Day is like a big charity or something, right? And we're still a very small group. World Elephant Society is actually the name of, of World Elephant Day's public uh, charity, which we run actually out of the, out of the United States. And um, here we are doing World Elephant Day. And I mean, I think this year on our campaign year, we had 3 billion impressions in our social media on the hashtag. So we created the hash World Elephant Day hashtag, uh, I think in like 2010, in fact. And we started using that hashtag. And, you know, we were still working with Twitter and Facebook back then. And, and it grew to having uh, that kind of reach now where we have 3 billion impressions on that hashtag on the World Elephant Day campaign. And it's recognized by, by global brands, by governments, by celebrities, by, and by citizens all over the world. 
And the other interesting thing that started to evolve with World Elephant Day a couple of years ago is governments, um, both in the US and Asia, and actually this year, Singapore, China, has used World Elephant Day as a day to pass legislation because it's a day that brings people's focus to a very important issue. And when I started it in 2012, the idea was bringing everybody together on the issues because there's so many issues, so co many complex issues. Yeah. Elephants are in many, many different countries. You have all the African countries and the African elephants, and you have all the Asian countries and all the Asian elephants. And then you have so many different variations between culture, spirituality, government. So you put all that together, it's very complex. So to try to address any one single issue uh, didn't make sense. So it made sense to say, well, no, let's, let's put one big umbrella day together for all the elephant issues and focus the world's consciousness and the world's attention on elephants on this day. And that's what happened. And it grew and it just amplified. And it, the, the other thing that's so interesting about it, when I uh, look at the campaign results, and, we, and each year after the campaign, we do quite a lot of um, sort of uh, metric analysis. You know, we look at our data and we get a lot of information about who follows us and, and you know, who's saying what. And it's usually quite, uh, you know, we're just finishing up our 2019 report now. And it gives me a lot of information on, you know, who's out there on the planet that that cares about elephants and and you know want, wants to I do bet it there's again. a lot of people that care about elephants there are the other interesting thing that happened this year and and i thought okay well this probably i couldn't ask for better kind of um uh influencer so to speak is this year pope francis wrote about world elephant day so we had actually wow. Yes, yes, they, the Vatican published a whole article about World Elephant Day on World Elephant Day, tweeting about World Elephant Day. So I thought, all right, well, that gets pretty, you know, that gets pretty good when you say, okay, well, now we've got the Pope talking about it, right? So for everyone but, in the tribe listening to this, the tribe <laughs> of Green Planet, Blue Planet, and Holistic Visions, like this is what it takes, right? Like you're saying this is a grassroots kind of effort, still like operated. Um, pretty much like a, as a passion project in some ways, right? And it, it has reached millions of people. It has made legislation changes maybe possible or inspired them or inspires them regularly because we never know what our action actually catalyzes. Like the law of cause and effect is definitely too, too hard for the human singular mind to understand all the time. So often it's moments like this where we see, okay, it's some inspired action. I mean, you've been following Patricia Elephants for years and years, right? You've been in the wild, you've been making films for, a, for a, quite a while. So it's, there is momentum building to that. But it's, it's just these trim tabs exist. And these trim tabs is really what um, I believe all these islands of sanity around the world that are practicing a form of, uh, you know, exchange without money possibly or, or living in, in communities or planting food or whatever it is that people are innovating. Um, I think they make sense when we look at how they can trim tap into a larger reality. Super inspired by that. Yes, well, it's all about consciousness shift, right? It's all about getting everybody focused on a change and doing it not from you know a kind of political agenda per se. I mean, I believe that one of the reasons World Elephant Day has grown to the level that it has, and, and you know, we've had no money, it's not like I've been taking out expensive Facebook ads or anything like that, this has happened organically. 
right? This all grew virally and organically starting like eight years ago. And we just kind of kept it going and maintained our own uh, neutrality, you know, because we have our own website, we have our own, you know, brand, essentially World Elephant Day is, is a conservation brand. I often say to people, it's like I, I run a marketing agency for the elephants, right? I mean, it, you know, it's like we're, we're, the, we're the ad agency for the elephants. And so we, you know, we speak out each year on elephant issues and we have this neutrality. And I think that's why it's been able to, to grow to this level because we haven't been affiliated with one specific NGO or one specific government agenda. We've been for everybody. So any organization that has an elephant issue or the, all the complexities around that, whether it be the ivory trade, whether it be captivity, whether it be zoos, whether it be habitat issues, human elephant conflict is another big issue that is a result of habitat loss. So everybody kind of comes together on World Elephant Day each year rallies around their respective uh, and issues and then fundraises respectively for their own conservation issues using World Elephant Day as the banner because it's the focal point yeah. and you can get the world's attention. I like how you say that, like we get the world's attention, right? Because it's a banner. So basically um, it doesn't matter if you're pro dolphins or pro elephants at that point. It's just we're, we're standing up for the rights of animals and to question the way we, we kind of govern this, this spaceship earth in terms of like conservation and, and preservation of natural, um, you know, pristine and, and, and uniqueness in that sense. Can I ask you just like, because I know it, this is a tricky subject for some people, um, but what, what would be your vision? Like what, what would be your vision in terms of wildlife and space for wildlife and how much space it requires without human interference possibly and um, if you want to include, I know I'm already giving you a bit a pretty big parameter here, but if you want to include like the role hunting plays and, and conservation goes on this planet right now, like I, I feel like you're probably at the source of a lot of that insight. So I would, would love to hear your perspective. Yes, well, that's um, you know, quite a big subject. Um, and you know, of course we get into the carrying capacity of habitats. Um, I think using the Reintroduction Foundation again as an example, that area is very interesting that half million acres that was set aside because no people go there they're they're not national parks mm. they're sanctuaries so the the last late king of thailand um established them as wildlife sanctuaries and they're off limits to human intervention they're just for elephants and then what happens when you put elephants back into a habitat is it replenishes that habitat because elephants have quite a quite an important role in the ecosystem and other wildlife comes and so on. So wildlife sanctuaries with limited human intervention, I think is absolutely necessary. I think we have to establish safe areas where humans just can't go, you know, or if you do go, you need to, you know, there's, there's a limited amount of human involvement, a little amount of visitation and that it has to be controlled, unfortunately. I mean, I hate the idea of saying that because I'm not one for control, but at the same time, unless you start to impose these protected areas, and, and it has been occurring, I mean, there are lots of, you know, protected areas all around the world, and we need to maintain them as protected areas. And then there's a management issue of the carrying capacity of those habitats as well. Mm, interesting. That's the reality, the more pragmatics of, yeah, so of the idea, right? Habitat, but now you've got, yeah. like, you know, 50 years from now, you've got too many elephants. Then what are you going to do? Yeah, right? yeah. 
So we got involved uh, last year in a pretty big initiative that was run by um, a project called Moving Giants, which was run by De Beers Group. Now this is De Beers, the diamond company. Now they've had a huge corporate or social responsibility uh, practice in play for a number of years. The company's CSR is actually quite good. And they have done an amazing project of moving what will be 200 African elephants. These are wild African elephants from South Africa to Mozambique for this problem because there's too many elephants in this one protected area and not enough elephants in the national parks in Mozambique. Mm -hmm. So the company uh, spent a lot of money to launch this conservation initiative and so far it's proven to be quite successful. So that's an example of companies taking responsibility for their negative environmental you know, imprint yeah, and giving back in a capacity that can actually help an issue both for the elephants and for the habitats that are, that are being you know, jeopardized by the lack of elephants or too many elephants. So how do we manage this? So companies have to take responsibility, absolutely. I think we've moved beyond the days where, you know, it's like, oh, big bad company, we can't deal with these companies, you know, they've done all the bad, you know, all the bad acts to the, to the, to the planet, to the environment. Yes, that's true, they all have. But now it's time for these companies to step up and take action and put their money where their mouth is, so to speak, and start to make these impacts in environment because they can, because these yeah, companies yeah. have a lot of money right? Uh, these companies are operating with billions of dollars in some cases. So, you know, we're talking about a company like De Beers Group, other mining sector companies, uh, the oil and gas sector, the timber industry. These corporations have a lot of money that can give back into the environment. So I believe that making those relationships and, and, and promoting and working with those corporations from that perspective is very, very important because I believe that's one of the big the big factors that has to happen because these are the companies can can make a difference because they have the resources at their disposal. Government often can't operate uh, as fast or as easily on that level because you know government is government, so it has to be compliant with a whole bunch of other circumstances. What could governments do better, though? If we were, I mean, we're not in a utopian reality, but if we were, like, what is it that that governments? could really do in their slowness to aid the, the, the overall consciousness that is rising. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, education, I think, is key, right? That's a really big factor for a lot of countries is putting more focus on education so people become more informed. Environmental education, um, relationships with nature, you know, all of those, these things are not necessarily part of our educational system, right? Kids, there isn't, something in school at a young age that, you know, we're taught about our relationships with nature. How do we live properly with nature? How do we respect nature? All that should all be built into very early learning uh, schooling. That's one thing. I mean, I think the protection of habitat, the limitation of exploitation of resources, I mean, it's idealistic to think that that is going to stop because it won't. You know, the, these the resources that supply the earth are part of the economic system. Um, those aren't going to go away. So what I think has to change is the science around how do we do this more responsibly? How do we, you know, create uh, interaction between different interest groups working together, putting stakeholders together as opposed to opposed from each other 
to work together on any of these issues. So government can implement, I think, in a, in a different way through social systems, whereas companies can, can quickly put money towards an issue to make, to make a difference because they have more resources at their disposal and can operate from a different sort of platform. So I think the two combined is, um, is really important. You had mentioned hunting, and that's been a very uh, recent issue that's come up with uh, trophy hunting, specifically with elephants uh, in Africa. And it's the result of the habitat problem and the result of the human elephant conflict problem that is an impact from loss of habitat. So you get elephants going into areas that used to be their natural habitat, but now it's farmland or it's, you know, commercial land or residential land. And those elephants become very destructive in those environments and very dangerous. Um, you know, they're big wild animals. So the human elephant conflict issues are very, are, are, are very predominant in India, which is one of the, which has the largest remaining Asian elephant population and all throughout Africa now as well. So one of the discussion points in Africa this year, particularly in a couple of countries, um, Botswana being probably the one most, most noted in the media, was the reintroduction of, um, of uh, trophy hunting, lifting the ban on the hunting of elephants to address a human elephant conflict issue, a habitat issue, too many elephants, not enough habitat, mm. this type of thing. Um, you know, the hunting issue is complicated because it really, it, it really has two sort of levels that you can analyze it from. There's yeah, totally. the, con the conservation management side of it and then yeah. the ethical side of it. And well, then, I know that a lot of hunters, especially in the United States, they speak of hunting as conservation. I know, they, yeah. With hunting comes the budget to maintain territory and the foresight to plan what is done with that territory. And I mean, while I logically can agree to those reasons, because um, I, I am definitely admitting that humans are destructive creatures, so it's better for us to have foresight about our destruction. But at the same time, I feel like there's an ethical component to to wildlife, you know, that, that, that yes. seems to be so, a personal opinion, at least, you know? Yes. And so I did a lot of work around the hunting issue a few years back with whales in the high Arctic uh, with mm -hmm. the Inuit in Canada. And mm -hmm. this was uh, one of my earlier film projects when I was looking at the traditional hunting culture of the Inuit. So this was not commercial hunting. This, was, this is looking at a culture that, have had, that has had a hunting relationship with marine mammals, beluga whales, narwhal, seals, walrus for thousands of years, right? Yeah. <laughs> thousands of years so this is long before commercial whaling this was so there's this was done conservation was built into these people's lives and, and worlds and cultures and traditions uh it wasn't going to benefit them to overhunt any of these animals they needed to survive their livelihoods depended on these animals totally so the the, the hunting culture the traditional hunting culture subsistence hunting cultures of those times those relationships were done in respect and accordance with those animals. So, you know, these are people that understood and respected and understood these animals and understood the importance of these animals and lived with these animals and, and, and had a reverence for these animals at the same time. I mean, these animals 
are prevalent in their traditional belief systems, their mythologies, and so on. So you look at those relationships, and nobody's going to say anything against that because that's a way of life. Um, it, it's like a cultural. Yeah. Yeah. Like everything else that's happened, you know, come the industrial revolution, uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago, the need for oil, uh, whales were a big source of oil in the early part of the industrial revolution. And so you entered into the commercial whaling industry, which just, you know, basically did exactly the same thing as what we're seeing right now with the elephant ivory, right? Except the difference being the oil was actually being used for an industrial purpose. The ivory is being used for nothing more than trinkets. So it's kind of even a stranger sort of concept. But, but back to the hunting point, you know, when you look at the, the development of commercial hunting and, and, the, and the, you know, the over-exploitation of that hunting, the lack of, res of uh, respect, responsibility to that environment, that ecosystem, the role of that creature in that ecosystem, you know, again, another example of the greedy human, you know, that, that just kind of wants it all, um, you know, it puts a really bad kind of light on, on hunting and hunting has had a tremendous amount of destruction. So when you're looking at hunting for subsistence, it's a very different thing than when you're looking at hunting for, for glory or for industrial exploitive purposes. So now with the argument that, elef that um, elephant, hunting elephants is good for conservation, the example that I can use is what's happened with the polar bear in, in, in Nunavut, right, in the Northwest. Please do, yeah. Yeah, the, the Inuit. So they started wanting to sell off their hunting licenses to American hunters that want to come up and hunt a polar bear. So, you know, that was bringing a lot of money into these communities. And because, uh, you know, these American hunters would spend a lot of money to come out, uh, you know, fly up to the Arctic, be hosted in a, in a remote Inuit community, be taken out onto the land. And it provided an economic value to those communities. So there was a lot of discussion around the use of that um, licensing of hunting, that it was providing an economic benefit to these communities. Um, the ecological component there was not the same because we weren't at that time dealing with a habitat problem in the Arctic. But that was one argument for the value of hunting. Now, um, looking at elephants, um, the, the discussion comes around habitat loss and therefore too many elephants for those habitats. And so there has to be a way to sustain that population, the culling of that population, essentially. So that's where the conservation uh, discussion comes in, why the trophy hunting is uh, potentially a conservation strategy to help manage uh, overpopulation. But as I always say to people, it's not that there's too many elephants, there's too many people. <laughs> and so as a result, you know, you've got the situation where... Um, Just to share the numbers of elephants, I think the population of elephants, according to what I could find online, there's about like half a million to 700,000 African No, that's, 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 a, that's actually quite um, a generous number. Um, the... There was a great elephant census that yep. was done a couple of years ago. And so generally we're looking at under 450,000. So about 400 to 450,000 African, uh, elephants, African yeah. elephants left on the continental African yeah. uh, continent of Africa. The Asian elephant is far more endangered. Hmm. Um, there's about 40,000 
elephants, Asian elephants left. I mean, those are big creatures, especially the African ones, but still like 450,000 on like a continent that large that in comparison to the billions of humans that, that, that exactly. like walk around and, and require infrastructure. Exactly. I just find like from a, a and I'm going to totally take the naive perspective in this conversation because, you know, comparatively speaking, I am on this topic. I just find it so like logical that we would set certain territories of our spaceship aside for the kind of nature principle to, to, to do its thing. I mean, we're part of nature. We, we are nature, but we, we tend to create in, in, you know, our own little orbit. Like anything that's touched by human hand is entirely touched by human hand. If you go into a city, you can see we've created little incubators of what makes uh, like a human atmosphere, right? And, and so I believe we're, we need this and that's who we are, but we need it in an interplay with nature and nature um, kind of as it comes, because otherwise it loses it, this pristine kind of particle. You know, that if we just, you know, I grew up in Germany, as I, as I told you in the beginning, and Europe is so manicured. Everything mm -hmm. is manicured. And of course the wildlife comes back, but it's still manicured. And it feels very, very, very different than as if you are in a forest that's been there for thousands of years and mm -hmm. the trees have, there's like a, one tree that's a few thousand years old and you just realize, wow, my one lifetime is, is, is a very different relation to, to all the relations. And, and so it just seems so logical to me that we were to make state parks at the minimum or conserve populations at the minimum, but even beyond that, give nature kind of its own space to breathe, you know? Yes. Well, I mean, we have to ask ourselves really, <clears throat> what is the role of the human in the ecosystem? You know, we can look at other animals, um, and what their role is in the ecosystem, you know, plants, and you look at how the ecological system, the matrix of life within a particular ecosystem, and, you know, each animal and plant, they all have a role, right, in that system. What does the human do in, yeah. in any situation? You know, you put, you put the human into any kind of habitat, uh, you know, seems like the minute the human gets involved, it all kind of gets ruined, right? Or there's an overuse, or it's overexploited, or there's, so I think, you know, we've lost our understanding of what our role is here. Yeah, you, know, all, all, you know, all of these animals all have a role. I mean, I speak a lot about the role of the elephant in, in the environment because the whole bigger conversation now is the climate crisis. And, you know, elephants have a very, very important role in maintaining their habitats as, as uh, geoengineers. You know, they're responsible for the planting of trees. Uh, their seed dispersal, they travel long distances, they, they dig up water. I mean, they have a very important role in their environment. So if you start taking elephants out of the habitats, you lose the habitats, that just mitigates the whole climate crisis even further because elephants are one of the key climate uh, crisis totally. mitigators. You know, they're a keystone species. They're like a bee. The bees are the same. You know, bees also have a very important role in the engineering of a habitat. So yeah, the, the question becomes, what what's the role of the human being in the ecosystem? I totally agree. That's the umbrella question that climate change uh, is, is an, one of the many uh, reflections of. And, and, and so are all the species loss and, and that the entire flora and fauna of this planet, basically. Right? And, um, there is no question on my mind that leaving this rock to go to another planet to set up some kind of a bubble with oxygen <laughs> 
It's a rather <laughs> bad idea. Not that that wouldn't be exciting to a degree, but it was a rather bad idea in comparison to figuring out what is our role on this planet and how do we interact with our home planet in a regenerative way. And I happen to know that a lot of people think this way and there's a huge tribe out, out there that is, that's tuning in, that's you know, like feeling this, that's, that's, that's applying themselves in, in action. So maybe let me ask you, like, what are the best actions people can take um, when it comes to specifically elephants, but wildlife and preservation in general? Well, I think as consumers, right, we can make a lot of choice in what we buy and what we consume and what we reuse and what we throw away. Um, you know, we're all guilty of having too much stuff, right? I mean, we've all got lots of stuff, you know, so there's a lot of consumption. And I think consumption is probably one of the key elements that people can start to take, you know, note of in their own lives. How are they consuming? What are they buying? What are they supporting when they're buying that product? Um, you know, what are the alternative products? Spending the time for research. You know, palm oil. Palm oil is another big, big subject because that's destroyed more habitat than, than, than any cash crop is the palm oil plantations. And palm oil is in everything. How do we stop that? You know, how do you start to look for, okay, well, I don't want to buy this product because it's got too much palm oil or you want to, but these are all things that I think we all can do as, as, as people here on earth is making wise choices about what we consume and reusing. I, you know, call, it the, I, I call it the oat milk latte phenomena. I don't, I don't know if you've recently been in a coffee shop anywhere on the West Coast of North America. Matter of fact, actually in Europe too. You can demand oat milk since about six months, since about two years, people have gotten the wind of it, maybe just one year. Um, and oat milk, it, it tastes pretty good. Most people that, that you know, used to like dairy milk um, prefer oat milk over coconut or hemp or even almond, because almond has like a, a bitter side taste. And so, so the consumers are demanding it. Like now you go in the coffee shop, it's 2019 right now, and you're like, hey, I'd like an oat milk latte. And they're like, oh, we're just figuring out supply. We don't have it yet. And it's like, oh, really? But you can realize in that interaction, that's like yes. the awareness row is something else is possible. It's kind of the new cool thing to do. It tastes good too. Yes. <laughs> if we were able to create, you know, the same with like the plastic straw that got like a really bad reputation. In the yeah, last well, that's years. happening a lot now too. And, you know, not using, not buying a plastic water bottle, have your reusable water bottle, you know, all those types of things. But these are things that, that that's simple stuff that people can, can make a difference with just by being aware. Most people don't even think about it. But then when you tell people, they're like, oh, well, yeah, of course, I don't, I don't want to, I'll just, you know, I'll have my water bottle that I carry around with me that I need water. I'll just go and refill that water bottle. Right. So that's a big thing, I think, you know, is, is how we consume, what we eat, um, and what we reuse because there's so much stuff that just gets thrown away you know we we, we have way too much stuff producing all this stuff and then that stuff has to be transported all over the world and then you know the impacts of that uh, the fuel costs etc cetera, etc cetera. so uh, we really as consumers really have to look at we're how smart and aware consumer you know what we need to do and that's the big the big step right there because we as the species has this massive footprint on earth and then we get into these other issues like oh we have a habitat loss problem oh we've got a carrying capacity issue there's too many elephants it's like well wait a second why do we have a habitat loss problem in the first place you know well because there's too much 
human involvement is civilization, impacts, uh, construction, manufacturing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lean out the window here, but I feel like that would be to a degree all right or justified if we were able to sustain the entire human population with food, water, shelter. Mm. But if we haven't even, we haven't even done that, right? So, so clearly things are totally out of whack. It's mm -hmm. been the case for a few decades. People know about it for a few decades. And now is the time when the shit hit the fan so much that everyone is realizing it. Like, yeah, there are actually like islands and islands and islands of plastic waste in the ocean. All the species yeah. are declining in numbers. Let me ask you maybe on a personal note, like how do you keep your optimism in a world that uh, at least the media tells us looks this way largely? Ah, oh, how do I stay optimistic? Um, I guess I'm, um, I believe in hope-topia. I'm, I'm hope-topic. <laughs> I have hope. Hope-topic, I never heard that before, that's great. I've made this word up because we talk about <laughs> People talk about utopia, I talk about hope-topia. Hope-topia. No, I live in hope-topia, right? I, I have a lot of, a lot of hope. Um, I do believe in the in the 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 vision and the prevalence and the purity of the human spirit. I think the human spirit, if we think of ourselves collectively as a spirit, as part of what this great planet, the mother, has created, and where we're part of we're part of her offspring. We're part of it, right? And and we're kind of like the bratty teenager right now that's not really doing what we're told. They're sort of maybe starting to understand. I do believe that the evolution of human consciousness, the human civilization does have the opportunity to move into concert with being part of this beautiful creative system, right? The earth is a, it's an concert. amazing like example of, of creativity. Everything about the natural world is about, is about creativity, right? We are creative. And I think that's our, our gift as a species is we're a creative species. That's what does set us apart from other animals because we have the ability to create and to manifest in a physical form. Other animals have different roles that they do here to maintain the system, but we as a species, we have this gift, this gift of creativity. So with this gift of creativity, we can create, if we focus, if we shift the energy sort of field that we're operating in right now into one of positivity, then there is hope. And that's what keeps me optimistic. <laughs> that's why I live in Hopetopia, because I believe in the human spirit. I believe in the creative power of the human spirit. Beautifully put, Patricia. I really, I really enjoyed that, moving into concert with the natural world. Wow, that was um, already a, a, a super vast and, and also also really daring conversation in, in some parts. Thank you for diving into the topic of, of hunting and the topic of like preservation, conservation, and, and just like uh, some of the, the ickiness that, you know, it's um, not always everyone feels comfortable to address, but I believe exactly when we can address those topics with a positivity while acknowledging facts and acknowledging uh, reality, we become even more powerful as people, as a tribe, as a collective. And I think it's required to, to have open-minded conversations about what's up and, and, and kind of point towards the direction. So as my last question for you, can you give us a mental image of how Hopetopia would, would look if, if there's, you know, like um, 
let's call it a seven generational vision, like a 200 year earth vision. What, what's in your Hoptopia? Mm. Oh, beautiful forests and mountains and tribes of people all enjoying without stress and anxiety, the beauty that nature provides. There's an abundance of food and an abundance of sunshine and people have the opportunity to just kick back, relax and be creative. And, but the animals are our friends and we can, we can converse with them in ways not, you know, verbally or not necessarily even telepathically, but in, in behavioral ways and in, in, in sharing and in, in sort of energy and, and that interconnectivity with nature is there for us whenever we choose to see it. And it's here now. You go into the forest and you can see the way the light hits a tree and the way the wind, you know, catches a leaf or blows a flower and all of that is the beauty of what this planet is. And, and so I believe that Hopetopia is being in harmony and in concert with this beautiful creative force that we're part of. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's exactly like it. Patricia, thank you so much for being on Green Planet, Blue Planet. I will make sure to mention your movies and the website of Elephant Day uh, in the show notes. How can people help you if somebody is inspired after this conversation and says, I'd like to reach out or I'd like to support Elephant Day in the journey of, of broadening that consciousness? Well, um, as I was mentioning earlier, World Elephant Day, we are a grassroots charity we do need support. Funding is our number one challenge all the time. And I guess part of that is because, you know, we work so much to promote the work and efforts of all these other elephant conservation organizations that are doing the work on the ground to help elephants. But we ourselves are World Elephant Day and we're holding up the tent, right, for all these organizations to come underneath and do their respective important work. But we, the World Elephant Day, organization also needs support too to keep to keep the banner flying to keep this movement going forward so support funding support donations are gratefully um, acknowledged and received and uh, that helps us maintain our infrastructure so we can carry on doing the work that we're doing in bringing the world together to help elephants cool thank you so much thank you that's that another episode of green planet blue planet podcast i hope you truly enjoyed this one and received some insights knowledge and a form of learning that you can directly apply to your life into your relationships or maybe even into your business and the way you show up for the world because this is a movement and we're all part of it very much so and we're in this together we're here to create a world of a triple bottom line where you win i win and the entire planet wins we're raising consciousness together and you know that. That's why you're listening. That's why I love you. So make sure to share the love. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Invite a friend to listen to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. And if you have an idea who else you'd like me to interview, make sure you reach out and send me a suggestion. Definitely check out greenplanet-blueplanet.com, the website to the podcast. I've created a lot of different offers for you. Free content, free meditations for you to amplify your connection to self 
the state of social impact in the world, and for you to connect and listen to who you could support of the people that I actually interview, because their missions are ongoing and a lot of them need more collaboration. And after more than 100 episodes now, with some of the world's leading social impact experts, I have synthesized my most inspired learnings and takeaways to create coaching and mentorship programs for you and the people around you. Let me share with you about planetary purpose coaching and mentorship experiences. If you're in a space in your life where you're ready to level up to amplify who you are, what's coming through you and what you're doing to give your gift to the world, then I would love to hear from you and I'd love for you to apply to one of my private mentorships or group mentorships. Because getting all of the juice, all of that life force that's in you out into the world is something you deserve and the entire world around us deserves. Also, I work with people who are entirely new to this, to the topic of planetary purpose or the topic of meditation, the topic of inside evolution and revolution. And if that's you and you're ready to step out of the ordinary and into creation, or if you know someone who is totally ready for that, make sure to check out the website or share the website. And you can also always shoot me a message on Instagram. I'll definitely read it and get back to you. Because, like, guys, this is real life. Let's be in touch and let's create this together. Last but not least, there's a few different group experiences I host, both in person and online. All of them are quantum learning environments, and I'm happy to tell you more. So simply inform yourself and stay connected, because whatever resonates with you, I'm here to support you and bring out more purpose into the world. And with that being said, wherever you are in the world, make sure to be you, show up all the way, be all in. Connect with someone today, make them smile, have yourself a stellar day. Lots of love to you, and until soon.